Coming up, a Sad Styles production. Hello and welcome. My name is Mike Aaronworth, signing on to the Sign Off, a Framework podcast for yet another week. It is the forum for all the stories you didn't know you wished you knew about the world of sports and sports marketing. And today I'm sitting across the boardroom <laughs> from one of the most smiley men I've seen. You what? crack me up. You're so high energy when you do this every time. I can't stop but smile. You yeah. gotta be. Well, you knew me as, as a child who wasn't high energy. Yeah. What, what, what are you talking about? This no. is this is how I've always no, you've been. You've been always like that. And usually when I'm high energy, you're not smiling at me. So this is <laughs> This is a welcome change. You're usually saying, be quiet because I'm trying to watch TV. That's that's kind of and, and our guest today is on that TV every so often. And we'll introduce her in just a moment before we do, as we typically like to do on this podcast. We want to give a bit of a shout out to our listeners out there who have been supporting the show by giving us reviews and ratings on both iTunes and Spotify. We've picked one from the list today. Uh, the title on Apple Podcasts, five stars, an incredible look behind the curtain from You Gotta Belief via Apple Podcasts, as I mentioned, as someone who has recently expanded my interest in collectibles for my redesigned Toronto Maple Leafs fan cave. This podcast is a must listen to for me each and every week. In addition to a company who provides exceptional quality pieces for my collection, this is sounding like we wrote this one. This podcast has also offered a very interesting look behind the curtain for those like myself who are fascinated about sports marketing and the business of sports. Keep up the great work and a chance to see your conversations with wonderful guests that include ex-players or those who are working within the sports world. Fantastic. That was like a longer essay than I've ever written in school. This is, this is a nice one. So you got a belief. Thank you so much for reaching out to us again. Uh, We have a special prize for you for having picked your review at random. Wendell Clark was just in our offices recently. Yesterday. And you're a Leafs fan. You got a belief, I'm assuming. Uh, Let's uh, let's send you a signed 8x10 Wendell Clark photo. Send us an email, signoffpod at frameworth.com with your address. You got 30 days from the drop of this episode and we'll get that out to you. Again, if you want to put yourself up there to potentially get some free memorabilia, leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way. Plus, you're helping two just decent, hardworking fellas sitting across the board. (laughs) room from one another. Uh, But we've waited too long. uh, uh, This uh, our guest this week, she's been telling you all of your favorite behind the scenes sports stories for nearly 25 years, but her roots in the hockey world stretch back all the way to her marketing role with the Hall of Fame and further still to a childhood surrounded by hockey. You've seen her on all your favorite sports stations as well as a mainstay in hockey broadcasting. But today, instead of her giving you in-depth insight into the NHL's captains, we're going to give you some insight into this week's guest, Christine Simpson. Christine, thank you for joining us today. Hello, gentlemen. It is my honor to be a uh, part of your podcast today. Thank you very much for the invitation. I, I have to say just off the bat, um, we've had a ton of guests, many of whom have gotten comfortable recording from the comforts of their own living rooms, homes, basements, what have you. Many of them throw on a sweatshirt. Uh, you're looking fantastic in that jacket. I like it. I try to usually dress up a little bit and it's usually not reciprocated by the guests. So I appreciate I appreciate that quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I figured I had to class it up a little bit here. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. You definitely did that. Um, so, so thanks again for joining us. I'd love to get into, I mean, everyone who's listening to this is familiar with your voice and your likeness. Uh, you've told us so many stories over the course of our hockey watching careers, and you've got such, as I mentioned in the intro, a, an ingrained sense of this hockey culture with you. So I'd love to spend a little bit of time talking about your, uh, your childhood growing up, how you got into the industry, and then we'll get into some stories about what it's like to be a reporter in your world and, and some of the jobs that you've got into to start, your mom was an Olympic sprinter. Your father played university football. Your brother, one of your brothers was an Islanders draft pick. Another brother uh, played for the Edmonton Oilers, two-time Stanley Cup winner. Um, you have another sister as well, though. Was she in, in sports as well? 
No. And, and she actually just passed away um, almost two years ago. Now Jan was our eldest sister and she was the one to be honest, who kind of uh, kept all of our sports egos in check because she had zero interest in sports. And so, well, we would go on and do all these things that would make us feel kind of important. She was like, Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I I didn't catch that. Um, But (laughs) the deal always was she was very much involved in, in music. She was brilliant. She had her PhD by the time she was 30, but um, so smart and classical music. I learned about from her going to art galleries and museums, which I do every time I'm in an NHL city on the road, I always find whatever the nearest art gallery or museum is because of our sister, Jan. Amazing. But the deal with the, the boys with their hockey was Jan was forced to go to one of their hockey games every season, and they were forced to go to one of her concerts each year. <laughs> That's so amazing. Was, hey, we are a family and we support each other. So she'd end up, she'd be, you know, uh, watching Dave at a London Knights game and usually bring a book. So she would be reading because <laughs> she really was not that interested. But I would say it kept us all honest and very well-rounded. Mm-hmm. That's nice. that's fantastic. I, I can imagine growing up with uh, uh, so many people so obsessed with sports as, as you did in your family may be somewhat intimidating. And I've got to, I mean, similar to us though, like as as a family, my sister was into dance. I played some basketball, not at a, at a high level. I was just tall enough that people wanted me on their team and that was about it. But my sister would come to my basketball games. I would go to her dance recitals and I didn't like going to her dance recitals, not because it was dance, but because I would get so nervous before each of her recitals that it almost became like, like, like more anxiety for me. I think she just liked coming to the basketball games because she didn't care. She would probably be reading a book, but I never went to any of that stuff. No, of course you did. I was here at the office. Yeah. Um, I have a question though for you, uh, which is, which is essentially, you know, growing up in this family, knowing that you, you, you had a sister who, who wasn't quite as into sports Mm -hmm. was, did, was this, was this affinity towards sports that you so clearly exhibit now always something that you had, or did you almost feel pressured into it? Or did that just come naturally for you? You know what? I feel um, birth order in the family played a big role in it because with our sister being the eldest, you know, by that she's old enough to sort of do her own thing. Whereas I was the middle sister in between my older brother, Dave, and my younger brother, Craig. So I feel like I was more influenced. And also I wasn't able to sort of stay home on my own, whereas the elder sister could. So it just meant our, you know, all of my youth was spent in hockey rinks, kind of being dragged to watch either Dave or Craig. But because of that, that's where my love of hockey began, was just sure. as a sister being a bit of a rink rat, going around, you know, hockey tournaments on the weekend. You guys know what it's like. So just being yeah. around the game so much, I was definitely influenced by my brothers in that respect, more so than our sister was. Well, plus the fact that while watching them and having the inside track to guys, uh, to players at that level, you also get a much better understanding of the game, which is a great background for you moving forward. I mean, you know what the game is about, which is uh, really valuable when you're in your job. And I'd like to think I have, um, just because of, you know, both boys having their own path into hockey, Craig, obviously uh, going all the way through to the NHL for 10 years. I do feel I have an understanding of what it, what it is like for a player, you know, what, what that uh, journey is like, uh, what it takes to get there, uh, what a game day is like, what it's like for a family. I mean, the most fun is covering a Stanley cup, you know, championship, because you know, I mean, I, I look at the families of the players and I know what that feeling is like. So perhaps that does help me gain a little bit more insight with the players that I'm interviewing because I've been there. I know what it's like. 
So as, as we as hockey fans are watching the game on the rink, do you find just as much interest in watching the reactions of the people in the stands? Is that is that kind of your connection to them? Knowing that that's the people to whom you're going to be speaking, whether they're families of the players or not, bringing that family element to it, is that something that informs the way that you go about broadcasting? Yeah, I think in, in a couple of ways. First of all, I mean, there's nothing better than an NHL player's first game. And, you know, seeing the right. family, and I've been lucky enough to be able to interview parents in the stands. I mean, Austin Matthews' first game in Ottawa, that four-goal night, all you know, was the first time I got to meet his mom and dad and get a chance to interview them in the stands and just the tears of joy from Emma, as as obviously Austin had just an amazing night. So that is a part of it. But when it comes to, you know, because people say, Well, how do you figure out what you're going to ask the player? I mean, I think at the end of the day, I just think of myself as a fan. I'm, if I was home watching it on TV, what would I want to hear from that player? Right. I mean, it sounds pretty basic, but at the end of the day, you know, I don't need to analyze the play. We have, a, you know, analysts for that. I just kind of want to know from them what everyone else at home might be thinking. Oh, I wish you would ask him this. And that's kind of where my mindset is when I am coming up with uh, questions to ask guys during the games. I, I think that's so critical because, you know, we had Rod Black on a couple of weeks ago and, and he kind of said the same thing. And and he he was he was very humble about his role in broadcasting because he said, you know, all I'm doing is I'm, I'm telling you what's happening and this and that. But adding that color to it, adding the stories, that's why we love sports. You know, we don't love sports because a stranger put a puck into a net. Yeah. We love it because there was a history of this player getting there to the league. We know there's family involved. We know there's this element that goes beyond just people playing a game. Uh, and I think that's critical. Uh, you know, I, I, I say this all the time. We have athletes on this podcast. We have agents and this and that. I am always enamored by the broadcasters. I think that adding that level of flair and uh, to to the sports and our experiences. I don't think people like sports without that happening. Not nearly well, as much as they do. Nobody listens to it with the sound off. Right. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. In fact, some people go to the arena and still have the earplugs That's in so true. that they can hear yeah. something being told. To hear what but, people are saying or explaining. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, it wasn't right off the bat that you were involved in broadcasting. Obviously, you had a job with the Hockey Hall of Fame uh, mm-hmm. as, a, I think, the head of marketing? Yeah, um, I was marketing manager there for Marketing years. manager. Now, what was your what was your role there and how did you go from uh, a self-proclaimed rink rat to marketing at the, at the Hockey Hall of Fame? Well, it was a very circuitous path. And I always say this to anybody who's wanting to get into this industry. And I think it's probably true of, of any in- industry. There isn't one way of getting there. There isn't a straight line always, you know, and for some it is, you go to, you know, journalism school and you learn about sports broadcasting. A lot of those programs that are out there now didn't even exist when, when I was at Western, you know, when I was at Western, this wasn't even a, a thought in my mind that that's what I wanted to do. But I tended to have jobs within sort of the marketing world. Um, and, you know, eventually in 92, it was almost as if finally my marketing background. I'd worked for Roots doing marketing with them. I worked on the Olympic bid, the 96 Olympic bid. So it was starting to become more sports and marketing. But for the first time when hired by the Hall of Fame, my my love of hockey and my background in marketing were combined for the first time. And it was a very exciting time to be a part of the Hall. I mean, when I was hired in the fall of 92, we were still that little rinky old, uh, you know, Hall of Fame building down on exhibition grounds. Right. The Canadian Sports Hall of Fame was one half and the Hockey Hall of Fame was the other. But I was hired because we knew we were moving to this 
grand new place at, at the corner of Young and Front. So that's why I was brought on board. And so the fun part of that, you know, working from the fall of 92 to when we opened the doors in June of 93 was watching the evolution literally of the Hall of Fame being built, of that beautiful old Bank of Montreal building being transformed into the great hall that it is today, of the old Brookfield place, it was called at right. the time. Literally, and TSM was one of our, our major sponsors. So one of my jobs was probably every couple of weeks for months, I would bring a cameraman down to the construction site, basically just to track the building of the Hall of Fame. Right. So it was so fun to actually see everything come together. You know, it kind of felt like a, a proud parent when we finally opened our doors in, in June of 93. And it was so special because we had invited every living member of the Hall of Fame to come back to be a part of the festivities. And Frank Sapovitz, who at the time was the head of uh, special events for the NHL, it was amazing. I don't even know how he did this, but he got the corner, the intersection of Young and Front shut down, and we did the world's biggest face-off with all of the living members of the Hall of Fame there in oh, front no of way. a huge puck with, with their six. The, the pictures are still out there, and that was uh, quite a way to kind of kick off what to this day is still, I think, one of the best Hall of Fames in the world. Wh whose idea was the uh, largest puck drop? I think it was Frank Sapovitz and keep in mind, so he, he was out of the New York office with the NHL, but he had worked at Radio City Music Hall before being hired by the league. So give him credit. And, you know, Steve Mayer is doing now wonderful things for the league as well, but it, he liked to put on a show and it's like, okay, right. we need to put on a show. And especially at that time, I think we wanted people to realize too, the Hall of Fame wasn't just an old stodgy museum, which frankly it had become down at exhibition grounds. Yeah, yeah. It was cutting edge at that time, right? It was all of the interactivity and things like we, we didn't want you to just be looking at things in display cases, although that is a big reason why people come down as well to see right. the memorabilia. But we also wanted you to be able to, you know, get in there and start shooting pucks and, and calling plays like you're a broadcaster. So it was it was a it was an exciting landmark in the you know in the Toronto sports scene. And now the Hall of Fame is is a staple item for any hockey fan coming to Toronto. And yeah. it, it was up up until recently. You got to go to come into Toronto, see a Maple Leaf game, maybe a Marley game, the Hockey Hall of Fame, and Gretzky's, which is right. not there anymore. Exactly. I just had lunch with him on uh, Saturday, and I'm trying to convince him that he has to reopen another Somewhere. restaurant here I know. because. People need to go there. That was part of the, the thing that you do. And you know what? Just uh, one, like, obviously, we had so many celebrities come to the hall, especially that first year. But when you say just that, um, Tim Robbins, the actor and, and New York Rangers super fan, I'll never forget him coming to the hall, you know, let us know ahead of time. Um, he wanted to bring his son to see the hall. And again, huge hockey fan. So what did they do? They flew into Toronto, went to the Hockey Hall of Fame, went to Wayne Gretzky's for lunch. And then I know went to a Leaf game that night. The funniest part, as I'm sort of walking him around the hall and showing he's, he's so tall. So people kind of yeah. noticed this guy, but nobody bugged him. I'll never forget though, once in back in the rink zone and his son's out there shooting pucks. One person I could overhear saying, Oh, look at that guy. Kind of looks like Tim Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> like never thinking that it actually could be him. But it was definitely for hockey fans. You're right. That was That's, what you did when you came to Toronto. People go now. I, you probably know this story, and I'll let you tell it if you do. Um, but uh, Wayne told me the story about when he went there and because 
Ty, his son, wanted to go, and he took took at least Ty, maybe the other kids, sure. to, to see the Hockey Hall of Fame because they had never been there. So he puts a hat on and he goes there. Did he ever tell you this story? I don't know this one in particular. So so, so he brings him down there, and he goes to the simulator. Yeah. yeah. And he's shooting pucks, and they're shooting pucks at the simulator, and then Wayne takes it, and he starts shooting. And there's a guy that runs the simulator yeah. there. So he doesn't recognize Wayne, and Wayne's firing a few pucks and missed whatever he was shooting at a couple of times. <laughs> and then the guy says, sir, if you just hold your stick a little oh, bit different. No. And, and then Wayne looks at him and says, I think I know what I'm doing. And the guy recognized him. He was just floored. Wow. I, it's it's kind of uh, it, a memory of what Wayne told me. I'm sure it's, yeah. it's a little bit better. Feels, that almost feels like it's it's too good a story to be real but those types of things of course no, are, are going to happen he told that there. to That's, me yeah. he laughed Absolutely. all the way through but he said it was so funny because the kid didn't recognize no him and then he was idea. just like oh my god I it's Wayne Gretzky it. you know what it. speaking speaking of Wayne uh, uh, we'll gloss over a little bit and, and come back to it but uh, now that he's 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 a topic of conversation uh, Christine you you uh, you know you went from the Hall of Fame to an in arena personality for the Toronto Maple Leafs mm-hmm. then you got involved in your in your, uh, your your realm of TV broadcasting recently just a couple years years back, uh, you had put together a piece that told the story of one of my favorite stories in, in hockey history. And we've had some of the puzzle pieces on to get their opinion. We've had Eddie Mio on, we've had Gus Bedali on, uh, uh, to talk sort of about the legendary near trade to the Winnipeg Jets yeah. for Wayne Gretzky, uh, a piece that, that you put together again, I'll, I'll watch that a thousand times. Yeah. I love it. I have a question for you yeah. because this is the question that I ask everyone who has any inkling of, of what had happened. Notoriously, there's a rumor that a backgammon game yeah. took place between Peter Pocklington and Nelson Scalbanian mm-hmm. for the rights to Wayne Gretzky because they were gambling and they had that, that little bit of a rivalry. Everyone I've asked has sort of eschewed the question and not given me a response. You've done some research into this, and I'm sure you don't know the definitive answer because I think Wayne also plays coy with it. What is your opinion? Did this game take place? I think I would say this. Never let the truth get in the way of a really good story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that's why. And actually, it was my producer, Paul Sadu, who came up with it. It's like, have you heard this story? And I guess I'd heard like bits and pieces about it. Right. Um, and, but it's like, we need to definitively like find, is this a true story? So we talked to everybody, including, and I've, been lucky enough to head out to California and interview uh, Peter Pocklington a few times. And I will just say, Pocklington's got some great stories, and yes. as does Nelson Scalvania. Yes. Um, Eddie Mio, we interviewed. Gus Vidali, we interviewed. And of course, Wayne, we interviewed. At the end of the day, let's just say, I'm not sure it actually happened quite like that. Yes. But I don't want to let that story die because it's just sort of too good. And we we kind of even in the feature leave it a little bit open-ended for everyone involved to just sort of listen to all of the principles that were a part of it and you decide. Yeah, I, 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 okay. So I choose to believe it happened. I choose sure. to believe it happened as well. <laughs> even though there's a part of me, there's a part of me that I agree with you, Christine. That there's, you know, were they playing backgammon while negotiating the rights? Probably. Yeah. Was there a bet where someone made a joke? Probably. Yeah. Did the rights follow because of that? Maybe not. But look, it's I, it's great to believe. I also still believe in, was, in Santa Claus. It was the so. Wild West, right? You know, yes. it was the Wild West of hockey at that time, especially with the WHA. So anything is possible. And I do know, like, you know, Pocklington would say, if if you owe debts, it's like, okay, well, here's a piece of art I'll give you that's worth this right. much. And that's sort of 
the payment for the player or here's a car that like certainly not the way it is now with okay the league has to approve all the paperwork and you know exactly for for all of the uh the 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 wild west nature of the WHA there it did so much though to bring forward the requirements of the NHL to look after its players yep. financially especially some of the younger players very true without you know, and, and plus it gave us some great stories to tell right yeah, like like these the WHA just what a fascinating era of hockey that i didn't get to experience myself but looking back on it it just it's stuff of legend, like the Wild West. I'll watch Deadwood and be like, "What? A, what a cool time!" Wouldn't want hey, to be watch, there. Watch but, the yeah. new Lakers story on that. That's oh just yeah, I can't wait to watch that. I haven't seen well, it yet. I've watched. There's only two episodes. I watched the second one yesterday, and it is crazy how the Lakers came into existence right. and what happened there. And talk about the Wild West. This guy was. This guy was wild. Uh, well, there's there's stories. There's so many stories about that that kind of permeate the realm of sports. And that's sort of what we like to get into on this podcast. And, and very similar, actually, Christine, to a lot of what you do in your broadcasting career, telling these stories that kind of exist behind the scenes. You've done so much of that. Um, are there any of those particular stories that stand out to you? I know you, you have a lot of great things to say for good reason about your interview with Bobby Ryan, but are there any specific stories that you've told over the years that uh, kind of have a special place to you? Maybe, maybe the, even just the job in researching them was great. Yeah. Well, I gotta say, and I guess all roads lead back to Wayne, but yeah. Bruce McNall is one of my favorite interviews right. of all time. And honestly, doing the story of how that trade all happened, right? When when Wayne went from, that was probably the first time I interviewed Peter Pocklington was part of the trade of Wayne right. from uh, Edmonton to, to LA. And Bruce McNall, I'll never forget, um, obviously wanting to do, I'd met him briefly, because keep in mind, uh, when I was at the Hockey Hall of Fame, um, he was on the, the board of the NHL, right? And then- right. And then obviously we saw him a lot because he was part owner of the Argos. So he would be in Toronto. So kind of knew him at that point. And then his house of cards came falling down. He ends up in jail. And then once he got out of jail, he had written his book, Fun While It Lasted. And if you haven't read that book, I highly, I haven't, that sounds good. It is. I highly recommend it. It's, it's just amazing what, and he'll say the same. It's amazing what he could get away with. Um, when people just sort of assumed he was good for the money and knew all of these people. So it's like, Oh, he might like, so banks would just give him money, which obviously didn't do their due diligence in what he was actually um, trying to do, but he had gotten out of jail and I wanted to, to interview him and he had written his book. So I knew he'd be going on a book tour, but I kind of wanted to get him before the book tour. Cause then, you know, he's going to be telling the stories to everyone. And so I kind of just kept at it and kept at it. And it wasn't until Wayne's number 99 was being retired by the Kings. And and if you'll remember, I mean, league-wide, his number 99 was retired, but the, the Kings wanted to do their ceremony from for him. And remember that Wayne didn't want that ceremony to happen until he knew that Bruce could be at it. So yes. he waited, obviously, until Bruce was, was out of jail. So that ceremony was happening. So, so sort of under the, not under the guise of, but yeah, of course, I wanted to talk to Bruce leading into number 99 being retired by the Kings. But I knew I also wanted to talk all about, you know, what happened. So I'll never forget going to his office and, you know, start the interview, talk all about what Wayne meant to him, what, um, you know, it did to hockey with him coming there, a little bit about the trade. 
And so then when you know, okay, we've got a good story anyway, that will lead into the big ceremony of number 99 being retired. But then I just asked, so what was it like being in jail? And you you never know if he's going to shut it all down and say, oh, I don't really want to talk about it, or you have to read my book. But he just then started telling stories. And the one story in particular, I remember him talking about, which I thought was great. He said, when people would come to visit, you know, you're, you're brought in, the prisoners are brought into a, a big room and their visitors are allowed to sit, in, you know, at a table, I think, in front of them. And he said, the most important thing to me was Wayne Gretzky came to visit me in jail. Mm-hmm. And what that meant, not only to Bruce, that Wayne would come to visit him in jail, but he said what it meant to all of the other prisoners and their families. So you would see, you know, the guy wow. next to me who's in jail for whatever reason and and has a young son there coming to see right. his dad and sort of thinking, wow, well, if Wayne Gretzky's coming to visit this guy who is a fellow inmate of my dad's, then my dad can't be as much of a bad guy as everyone thinks he is because Wayne wouldn't be coming in to, you know. What an interesting perspective I was, that is. That is a right? fantastic person. I have goosebumps thinking about that. That's that's because when you at first when you were saying that, I was like, oh, is he is he kind of talking about you know giving the the inmates inmates are are often you know they're they're humans. So I'm like, okay, I get that perspective. But yeah. the 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 element of the family related to yeah. it again, Christine, it seems to come back to yeah. to family to you a lot there. And that, that that's and what, and part of this story is is such a a great tribute to Wayne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is such a loyal guy to a fault when everybody else was abandoning Bruce. Yeah. I remember being with him at the time and him talking about Bruce and he had, he said, yeah, he did some bad things and all that stuff, but he's a guy that did me right all the way yeah. along and I'm not abandoning him for, for yeah. Wayne to go to a, a jail yeah. to visit somebody is really uncomfortable for him. Right. I mean, you, you knew he was debating on going and not, he says, I want to see him, but should I go? And he, I, I d- actually didn't know till you just said whether he actually went or not, right. but I remember him talking yeah, about it. He yeah. did. And so, yeah. And so McNall, I've been lucky enough to speak to a few times. I have to say the, the one other thing, um, again, just a bit more about the trade, obviously, uh, of Wayne from Edmonton to LA doing that story as well. And if, kind of done it a few times with all the people that were involved, but the uh, extra layer of it that's so fun for me, because if, if, if you can recall that summer, so Wayne gets married to, to Janet, my brother had just been uh, traded to the Oilers in November of 87 from Pittsburgh. He was part of the Paul Coffey deal. So Paul Coffey right. and, you know, a bigger deal than that, but Paul Coffey goes to Pittsburgh. My brother goes to Edmonton, ends up winning his first Stanley cup that spring of 1988 goes to Wayne's wedding. And then Craig had just come back to London, Ontario, our, our home for a bit of a family vacation. And Wayne calls him and says, Simmer, you have to get to LA. And Craig's kind of like, um, well, I actually, I just got home to London. I was, you know, I'm going to stay here for a while. And he's like, no, Simmer, you have to come to LA. He's like, okay. So Craig gets on a plane, Wayne picks him up at the airport, tells him on the drive in that I'm getting traded tomorrow and I wanted you to be here. Oh, wow. So they're staying at Alan Thicke's house and and because Alan was in Europe, so Alan wasn't there. His his little son, Robin, who went on to be- Oh, yeah, Robin. Oh, that little guy, yeah. Yeah, we, we've heard of him, yeah. So Robin's there and I was lucky enough to, to interview Alan Thicke, may he rest in peace, about what all of this was like too. So Craig is staying with Wayne at Alan Thicke's house 
when the trade actually happens. And just the fact that Wayne wanted Craig to be there, I think in part because he knew Craig is going to be part of the kind of the next generation of Oilers that are going to, you know, take on a leadership role for this team. I don't know why it was so important for Wayne to, to have him there. So Craig's there, like Craig is, is watching all of this happen. As we all recall the press conference, the, the tears, I mean, it was something else. And to have Craig who at at that time was like a 21 year old kid to have been there. And one of the coolest pictures Craig still has, speaking of memorabilia, if you'll remember Mm -hmm. the color, uh, the cover of sports illustrated right after that was um, Wayne and magic Johnson. So magic in his Laker gear, Wayne in his Kings gear and with a yellow backdrop, Craig has a picture of, of him with magic and, and with, with oh, Wayne wow. too, because he was there on the set that day too, while that picture was happening. Craig has pictures of Wayne in Alan Thicke's backyard by his pool, like with a Kings jersey on for the first time, because <laughs> it was just so weird to see it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was obviously a moment in time that we all remember. I mean, one of the pivotal moments in sports and, uh, and he was there for whatever reason, like Wayne just thinks of things that other people don't. It's weird because he's, he's done so much in his career professionally that I think people start to forget that he's a human being and and a great one at that. You know what I mean? Like, like when, when you hear that he's constantly looking out for people as we would look out for our friends. Yeah. It is that thing that humanizes him to a point where it's like, oh, he is one of us. It's one thing to sit here and tell a story as you do often, Dad, the story where he was in the restaurant. Uh, there were people sitting beside him. They had a camera. They didn't ask him for anything. But as he was leaving, he looked at the camera and said, would you mind if I took a picture with you to, to kind of reach out? and believe that. Like, I know. He does so much. And to your point, uh, over the years, I've seen him do so many things off the grid that people don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. That he just does. Yeah. You know? And uh, again, you know, speaking speaking of Wayne, uh, Christine, you may not uh, remember this uh, for, for a variety of reasons, uh, but uh, a while back, uh, I think it was, when was the the Collingwood Golf Tournament, the, the Pro-Am? Oh, God. Yeah. Celebrity Pro-Am. I think it was one of the- nationwide tour that Wayne did up yeah. in Collingwood. Yes, yeah. was was the first time I was I was just a young punk back then. Uh, uh, but but you and I had bumped into each other then. And, and, and that was one of those first moments where kind of like the story that you're telling uh, about your brother who kind of was able to see this side of, of, of sports and the intermingling of different celebrities and just this world that goes on behind the scenes there. Mm-hmm. That was one of my first uh, uh, forays into that. And it, it kind of, you know, looking back on those memories got me wondering, because I'm sure you've had a ton of experiences like that. Is there one pinnacle moment or, or a variety that you can kind of share mm-hmm. that being in the role that you've been in for so long has put you in like a special moment that, that you won't forget, kind of like the one you just told about your brother? Yeah, well, <laughs> this is the Wayne Gretzky hour, clearly, because sure. one of my it, favorite- it takes up a lot of our podcast. I can see why, for obvious reasons. So- Yes, back in the day, I was in Prague for the IOC vote, which ended up giving Vancouver Whistler the Olympics for 2010. And actually, long story short, I was sort of on vacation in Europe and then realized the IOC was voting in Prague. So I was going to be near, I was going to be in France. And so I'd gone to Scott Moore, who was the head of Sportsnet at the time. And it was only when we then heard that, that Wayne was going to go over with the Team Canada delegation for the IOC vote to, you know, hopefully give, give them that extra little um, push that would give Vancouver Whistler the bid. Right. So I'm like, I'm kind of already over in Europe. 
I can go that day if it's of any help, you know, and to see if I could interview Wayne because they thought, well, yeah, if Wayne's there and maybe you could get an exclusive with him. So fine. Sure. I end up in Prague and got there a couple of days before the actual vote. And of course, putting our requests through the Canadian Olympic Association and each day Wayne would, you know, there would be press conferences. So I'd be one of a million media there. And kind of kept asking, you know, would Wayne even have five minutes to do a one-on-one? Because I'm thinking, I'm I'm here to try and get something with Wayne. And each day, right. no, I'm sorry, he can't do one-on-ones. No, I'm sorry. So the vote day comes, and I'm actually feeling a little disappointed in myself that I couldn't get an interview with Wayne. And I'll never forget, after the announcement had been made, and Jean Chrétien was there. I actually got it part of a scrum with Jean Chrétien, our prime minister at the time, things that I never thought would happen in my sports sure. career. But then they had the entire uh, Canadian delegation in at a head table in a huge ballroom with all the world's media there. And of course, Wayne is part of that delegation. So I'm just sitting there. I see Wayne call over a woman to come over. So he's he's talking to this woman at, at his head table podium. I see him pointing to me. And I'm kind of thinking, what is going on here? A few minutes later, that woman comes over to me and says, excuse me, you're Miss Simpson from Sportsnet? Yes. Mr. Gretzky says that once this official press conference is over, if you and your camera meet him in the corner of the ballroom over there, he will give you an interview. Oh, wow. And I'll, I'll never forget because... James Deacon, bless his heart, um, at the time was with McLean's magazine and he was sitting right beside me and he looked and said, I can't believe what I just heard. (laughs) (laughs) Again, just another example of he would have known how important that was for me. And he probably knew she's been trying to do this for a couple of days, but he couldn't give any one-on-ones because then he'd have to give everybody a one-on-one. And yet he had the, the, the foresight to say, I can make this happen. And so I, I got my one-on-one with Wayne Gretzky in Prague after Vancouver had been uh, announced as the uh, Olympic site for 2010. So there you go. That's you amazing. They don't call him the great one just because of his hockey exactly. play. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, you know, he wasn't the only one to to have noticed you in regards to the Olympics. You had center ice uh, with Christine Simpson during the 2010 Olympics uh, as well. Uh, was that kind of, you know, to represent Canada on that scale, was that one of the the more proud moments or or is every moment sort of similar in, well, that, in that regard? You know, I've had so many um, great moments just for, for me as far as being a part of history, but the Vancouver Olympics is the only Olympics I've ever been to. So that, so that will always have a special place in my heart, right. especially with it being on Canadian soil. And so for me to be part of, um, it was Molson, Molson Canadian Hockey House, which ended up being the place to be. It's where all of the Olympics, uh, all the medalists would come. I mean, we had great entertainment. We had, you know, Brian Adams played one night. Um, Sam Roberts played one night. So it was a venue that was like the toughest ticket in town next to the hockey games, obviously. Right. Um, But to be on stage there every day and doing interviews with, uh, you know, the greats of the game, Hall of Famers, Wayne, uh, Mark Messier. I mean, we had so many uh, great alumni there. And also it's where Team Canada would come after the golden goal. Team Canada was there to to celebrate with all of us. And so to feel a part of, you know, such pride that obviously all of us as Canadians had but specifically hockey fans in Vancouver, I will say that uh, a couple of weeks in Vancouver in 2010 was one of the highlights of my career. 
One of the best street parties ever. Honestly, wherever, regardless of where you were. I was in Halifax. I think you, Dad, were in Vancouver. My brother was in Toronto. Regardless of where you were, yeah. uh, it was it was just outstanding. Um, you you mentioned you know something interesting earlier, a tidbit from the the the, the anecdote that you gave about about Wayne in, in Prague, how you found yourself in a media media scrum with Jean Chrétien. Mm-hmm. And you may have never assumed that that would happen. I'm sure, you know, the farther back you go, you never would have assumed you would have been working for the Hall of Fame or working for the Leafs or onto, and it keeps building up from there. But there's one that particularly interests me. Can you tell us what you know about someone named Donna Evans? Because <laughs> that's that's an opportunity that I imagine you wouldn't have predicted um, would happen for yourself. Being in a Saw horror film, playing a yes, talk show host named Donna Evans. No, it yes. wasn't exactly something that was on my, okay, this is my bucket list. I must be. <laughs> <laughs> but it all comes down to hockey because how that happened. Yeah, my my future, my future film role in um, a slasher movie came about because, as you'll recall at the time, uh, Oren Kulis was one of the owners of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Well, Oren Kulis is also one of the producers of all of the Saw movies. So I had gotten to know Oren um, just by doing Tampa Bay Lightning games. And also his his son, uh, Miles, is a player that's similar to my brother's son's age. So we would talk about, you know, the the kids and all that. So I'll never forget. It was actually just before I was going to Vancouver. So it was um, 2010. I get a call from Oren Kulis saying, Hey, Chris, uh, I'm, I'm in Toronto and looking at, uh, no, he starts it with, Hey, Chris, it's Oren Coolis. We're, sh- we're going to be shooting another Saw movie and I've got a role for you in this one. And I, I laugh. I'm like, Hey, that's really funny. And <laughs> am I going to have to cut my leg off at any point? Cause if so, exactly. I'm not, yeah. Do I die a grisly death? <laughs> and he goes, no, I'm actually, cause they shoot, they've shot all the Saw movies in Toronto. So he said, I'm I'm looking at demo reels of actresses trying to play, you know, talk show hosts and reporters. And it just dawned on me, well, instead of getting an actress to do it, why don't I get somebody who actually does it? What do you think? And I'm like, sure, why not? (laughs) So I'll never forget. It was just after I came back from the Vancouver Olympics, I find myself in a um, sound studio down on Eastern Avenue and spent like 14 hours shooting one scene that is, I don't know how many minutes in the movie, but it's, but it's the best part of the movie. So, well, yeah. and I don't die. So I keep saying, well, I clearly need to come back for another. <laughs> so I'm interviewing, um, yeah, a guy who survived the, the saw killer. Right. So he's, he's doing a book tour. So I'm interviewing right. about that. So I was a talk show host on that, but just the whole experience of seeing how feature films are made and how long it took to do that oh, yeah. scene. It just, I mean, yeah. we know in TV of any kind, it's hurry up and wait. Everything takes longer than it should, but on a movie set, even more so. But that was a great wow. experience. And you know, the funniest thing that fall when the movie came out, because they come out all, usually on a Halloween, so October 31st. Yeah. Shortly after that, I'm doing a game with the Capitals and Alex Ovechkin comes over and says, we saw you in that movie. Oh, and I'm, oh no. Well, I guess that would be the demographic for Saw films is probably, sure. you know, guys in their 20s who like slasher films. I went to the, I actually went to the premiere in LA at Grauman's Chinese Theater because I'm thinking, well, when am I ever going to be in a movie again? Um, right. They invited me to come. I couldn't watch it. Like, I can't watch horror films. I'm really bad with <laughs> So I got to admit, I spent most of the film with my eyes closed. 
but it was pretty fun just to know that I'm in a movie. Hey, there you go. And a credit on the screen too. <laughs> yeah. IMDB page and everything. Can't take that away from you. Yeah. That's as good as an Oscar. Are you kidding me? Um, the, you know, we're, we're running a little bit low on time. Uh, uh, we got to keep this one a little bit tight, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, uh, International Women's Day a, a couple years back mm-hmm. when it was a, I believe it was an all-female broadcast yeah. of, of a hockey game. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I've, I've wrestled with how to ask you this question. And uh, because, you know, two guys doing a podcast, you know, raising awareness if we can. I've always been fascinated by this. You, you've you said in earlier interviews that you are, uh, you know, proud to be, of course, a trailblazer for for women in in, in the, the realm that you work in. You mentioned when you were a kid watching Hockey Night in Canada, there just weren't women in your role. And of course, you know, playing that role as ambassador and as trailblazer is important. It's important to look back and to open the door and say, guys, look, we can we can do this. But I'm always curious when you're being interviewed and the tone of the question. And I understand the irony in asking this question in the first place because I'm gendering it. But when the question comes up and it's always what is it like to be Mm -hmm. trailblazing the realm of female broadcasting? Do you. I, I know you probably like to, to to answer that question and to spread the word, but is there an element of you that also wants to be asked, what is it like as one of the premier broadcasters in, in the sport, as as you deserve to be asked? As, as opposed to being asked for all of my male colleagues, what's it like being a male reporter in the world? Ex- exactly. That's, that's exactly so my point. I yeah, do understand yeah. the premise of the question, um, but I also understand there still is something about it that does set women apart because it's still... I mean, by virtue of the question, it means because you don't really like belong here. And I'm not saying that there, thankfully, more and more people do understand that women belong in what has been traditionally a a male realm. But I look forward to the day where it would just be another interviewer or another broadcaster, but we're not there yet. So I, I actually appreciate the question because it does allow us to talk about the fact that even the um, the importance of that game. And it's funny because it was the last NHL game that I did before the pandemic shut everything down. Oh, is that true? Was, I didn't realize It was that. on March 8th, International Women's Day 2020. It was in right. Calgary against the Vegas Golden Knights. And we were so excited to do it. It was myself, Cassie Campbell-Pascal, and Leah Hextall calling the game. But it wasn't just an all-female broadcast on-air team. You know, our producer, our director were all right. women. Oh, wow. Um, okay. I the didn't majority know that. I think it was were, near 30, near 30 women involved. Exactly. Or something and, and the only yeah. roles that weren't done by women is because we couldn't find women in Calgary or in Toronto as part of our crew that, that had those roles. And so, mm-hmm. but it was so important to, to really understand, um, hey, we're, we're doing this and it's not just a gimmick. It's not just a novelty because we all do this for a living. We're, we're doing it to kind of make a statement. So it was, it was such a, a great moment and and historic moment certainly for our our network being the all the first all female broadcast of an NHL game and then we all flew home from Calgary on March 9th and a few days later as we recall the world shut down but you know yes. the one thing about that i would say the beauty of that i don't ever feel the need to do that again we don't need to have an all female broadcast cuz you know what Cassie Campbell Pascal does games all the time. Leah right. Hextall now, like I love how her, you know, she has just skyrocketed now with with ESPN calling games. Um, I love AJ Malesko does games for TNT. I mean, there are so many women. Jen Botterill, obviously on Ka- Carolyn Cameron. 
we are women doing roles in all aspects of broadcast for us in hockey, but certainly uh, throughout sports. And the thing is, by doing your job, you're just normalizing for people, seeing women sure. in different roles or or seeing people of color in different roles. I mean, Harna Ryan Singh, my colleague, I, I love right. his story and how he had to persevere to get to where he is. But it's all about getting people to understand if you're if you can do the job, you you should be able to do the job. And so I never right. want it to be a gimmicky thing. Um, I just love that more and more uh, people from diverse backgrounds are given the opportunities to just show that they can do the job. And and if by me talking about women in hockey broadcasting, um, having more opportunities than when I started out, then as I, as I will always say, we have come a long way. We still have a ways to go. So let's keep more. the conversation going. But well, wonderful it, it, when young girls do look and say to me, well, I watched you growing up. So now I want to do that because you've inspired me to think that that's something that I want to do. When awesome. you talk about how long, how far it's come. And I remember the days where Harold Ballard was so controversial about letting women in the locker room. Remember that? Yeah. And and I, I, I didn't know oh, he had that big role. time oh, because yeah. the men would automatically go in. Right after the there, guys there got in there, are too many Harold Ballard rules to keep track of. This well, is not, this is old thinking. school guys. Yeah. This is and and you and the and the guys would be right in there. The the men would be changing. They get the first dibs on all the interviews, and the women couldn't go in until right. the guys were showered and finished and ready to go. And that was a big controversy. Yeah. How far have we come since then? Yes, we've definitely come a long way for sure. But still a lot more to go. Yeah, let's not just sit on our laurels saying, great, we're here. But uh, we definitely have come a long way, but let's continue the journey. For sure. Well, look, I, you know, we covered a lot. I have, you know, as, as you mentioned in, in some of your interviews as well, you have a notepad full of notes, most of which you don't even use over the course of a broadcast. I have a plethora of, of questions we, we could have gotten to, but uh, too many good stories that we, we couldn't leave any on the table. Uh, if you ever want to come back, you're more than welcome. We really appreciate the time that you've given us. Obviously, you can uh, be found on social media at SN Chris Simpson, but is there anything else that you want to plug and draw people's attention to today? Mm-hmm. Oh gosh. Well, there's, there's always stuff coming up. Um, I think I'm doing, uh, it's not confirmed yet, but I think my next guest for my big picture, uh, which is sort of big picture with Chris Simpson has been the yep. the segment that I've had this year, but looking forward to talking with Trevor Zegris of uh, the Anaheim Ooh. Ducks, who is one of the up and coming stars of the game. I mean, we all quite the all-star game. Too. Exactly. Wasn't that yeah. move? The dodgeball move blindfolded at All Star was something else. So in future, I think he's going to be my next guest. I'm 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 hoping that happens soon. And just uh, yeah, keep looking out on my socials. I always say what's coming up with me. Look forward to that and and a lot more great stories with with great hockey players from now throughout the playoffs. And uh, and hopefully uh, uh, saw seven three <laughs> years from now when they return uh, for another interview with a survivor or of the jigsaw you know killer. <laughs> And there you go. There you go. And hey, uh, if you want someone to cut their leg off on TV, you don't even have to pay prosthetics. I will do it. I, I will I will be there for you. I don't care if it takes 14 hours. Uh, thank you, Christine, once again for joining us so much. A fantastic interview. Uh, so for Christine Simpson, Brian Aaronworth, president of Frameworth Sports Marketing, and myself, Mikey Aaronworth, host of the Sign Off Podcast, this is us signing off. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we made it to the end of yet another episode. Thanks again so much for joining us. You can find videos of all of our episodes on YouTube by searching the Sign Off Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Frameworth Sport or Instagram at Frameworth Sports. 
And hey, if you're not sick of me yet, you can find me on Twitter over at at Retrograde Mikey, or you can always find me embarrassing myself over on Instagram at Aaronworth. The sign-off is a proud product of Fadu Productions and Sad Styles Productions, executive producers Mikey Aaronworth and Andrew Bascom. Until next week, this is Mikey Aaronworth signing off. Furnished by Sad Styles Productions. Get into it!